I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Sean Murata from Hogan Levels. Thanks for joining me, Sean. Thanks for having me. So first, let's hit some SCOTUS headlines. Uh, First up, Justice Clarence Thomas says that he's not going anywhere. He appeared at a Pepperdine Law School dinner last week, and Jim Gash, who is a professor at the law school, asked about retirement plans. The justice made it clear that he has no plans to retire anytime soon. And he's currently the most senior member, having spent 27 years on the court. Uh, So here's hoping that he will stay on the court for many more years. Uh, At the Pepperdine dinner, he also talked about his efforts to hire law clerks from schools outside the Ivy League. He said that he looks for applicants who are hungry and don't seem entitled. Uh, He said, the default generally has been the Ivies and the schools that are similar to them, but there are smart kids in lots of places. Indeed, he was the first justice to hire a clerk from my alma mater, George Mason, uh, and that former clerk, Will Consovoy, has gone on to do some pretty great things, including representing the Asian Americans in their uh, discrimination suit against Harvard. So moving on to what's happening at the court, uh, the court granted cert in one new case. Uh, this is Kansas versus Glover, and the issue is whether for purposes of an investigative stop under the Fourth Amendment, it is reasonable for an officer to suspect that the registered owner of a vehicle is the one driving the vehicle absent any information to the contrary. So a police officer in Douglas County, Kansas, ran a registration check on a pickup truck that he saw and discovered that the owner's license had been revoked. So he stopped the truck and issued a citation. And this ended up going all the way to the Kansas Supreme Court, which held that the officer needed more evidence uh, that the owner was the uh, that the owner was driving the car in order to make that stop. Now, almost every other state Supreme Court or federal appeals court that has looked at an issue like this has ruled the other way. Uh, so this will be maybe one of those cases where the court took it to slap down the uh, <laughs> the ruling of the Kansas uh, Supreme Court. Sean, do you have any thoughts on that case? Well, I think to start, it's usually not good to be a criminal defendant who is what we call bottom side, who's the respondent at the U.S. Supreme Court, because they don't tend to have the best uh, track record up there. The Kansas Supreme Court itself also has a bit of a storied history at the U.S. Supreme Court, (laughs) uh, including a case in which I represented the criminal defendant along with my colleague, Neil Katyal, um, in a case called Kansas versus Cheever. Although Kansas itself is fairly conservative, its Supreme Court is not as much um, because many justices were appointed by then-Governor Kathleen Sebelius. So the, uh, the Kansas Supreme Court is actually in front of the U.S. Supreme Court more often than a lot of other state uh, high courts because they tend to have rulings that are more defendant-friendly but don't end up being based only on Kansas law, which would keep them from U.S. Supreme Court review. So this might be another case where the Kansas Supreme Court may be in for a reversal. And indeed, this is the third petition the court has granted from Kansas that will be argued next term. So needless to say, the Kansas Attorney General's office is going to have a busy summer and fall. Moving on to the opinions from this week, uh, the court issued two opinions. First up was Bucklew versus Presythe. And this was a 5-4 decision in which the court rejected a capital defendant's as-applied challenge to Missouri's single-drug execution protocol. So the defendant here, uh, who was convicted of first-degree murder, kidnapping, burglary, and forcible rape, he has a rare medical condition that causes blood-filled tumors to grow in his throat. He argued that the state's use of the drug pentobarbital, 
would run the risk of him suffering excruciating pain. And he suggested lethal gas as an alternative. Um, Although uh, that is on the books as legal in Missouri, uh, they don't currently have a protocol in place for its use. And it's also a little unclear whether the lethal, lethal gas would actually be any better for him than pentobarbital. So in an opinion written by Justice Gorsuch for five members of the court, the court held that the Eighth Amendment does not guarantee a prisoner a painless death Uh, The prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment forbids methods of execution that would intensify a death sentence by super adding pain. Now, I had never heard that that term super adding before, but uh, that's what the court used. And uh, Gorsuch pointed to the court's 2008 and 2015 decisions in Bayes versus Rees and Glossop v. Gross, uh, which provide the standard for challenging a method of execution. Under that standard, a defendant must show a feasible and readily implemented alternative method that would significantly reduce a substantial risk of severe pain and that the state has refused to adopt that without a legitimate reason. Uh, But this doesn't mean that uh, a traditionally accepted method is unconstitutional as soon as an arguably more humane method is available. So veering slightly off topic, Gorsuch noted also that last-minute stays of execution should be the extreme exception, not the norm, and courts should, quote, police carefully against attempts to use such challenges as tools to interpose unjustified delay. So this comment undoubtedly refers to two recent high-profile requests that the court stay in execution. Back in February, the court denied a Muslim prisoner's stay of execution Uh, when the state of Alabama refused to allow an imam to be present at that execution. And then just last week, the court stayed the execution of a prisoner in Texas who wanted his Buddhist spiritual advisor to be by his side. Uh, So in, in a footnote in the decision that came out this week, Gorsuch pointed out that in the Alabama case, the prisoner had waited until days before his execution to challenge a state law that says only, uh, employees of the department of corrections in that state would be allowed in the execution chamber. So, Sean, uh, what what were your initial reactions? I, I think a, a couple different things. One is that it's um, notable how Justice Gorsuch continues his strong tradition of returning to the originalist roots in these cases. He starts out a lot of his discussion by de, by going back to the founding and discussing the uh, historical origins of the Eighth Amendment and what it means to be cruel and unusual punishment, whereas I think some <clears throat> some other justices would start by saying, here's what we've held in our previous cases, and here's what the precedent says. He really is committed to, I think, an originalist approach to things, even where some of those things might otherwise be governed by Supreme Court precedent. And he got into the Supreme Court precedent a little bit later, but he went back to the start. Uh, The second thing that I think is notable is that it shows the ongoing fight over um, over the death penalty at the court. Uh, particularly when it comes to how members of the court see or think about death penalty defendants and their attorneys. There is, I think, a strong five-justice majority that is very skeptical of uh, death penalty attorneys and their clients, thinking that the end goal is not so much to vindicate the Eighth Amendment as it is to try to delay an execution as long as possible. And so you see a lot of frustration in the majority opinion and it's probably a frustration that plays out in some of the last-minute stays of execution decisions we see, thinking that prisoners are just trying to run out the clock or push it out as far as possible. Um, and 
what Justice Alito called, you know, the guerrilla war against the death penalty, which is that mm-hmm. if they can stop there from being a means of carrying out the death penalty, or if they can continue to generate appeals as long as possible, no one will actually put to death. On the other hand, you have a strong for justice minority that feels that uh, the majority is uh, taking too jaundiced of a view. They're more likely to think that death penalty attorneys and their clients are just trying to uh, vindicate the Constitution and, you know, sort of do what you would expect attorneys to do under the circumstances. And I think they they take quite a bit of offense at the notion that there's gamesmanship from the defense side. And we're going to see how that plays out. Uh, another thing that I saw is that Justice Breyer continues his strong doubts about the constitutionality of the death penalty as it's currently administered sort of writ large. Mm-hmm. He had a separate uh, part three of his opinion Uh, dissenting opinion for the four justices, which wasn't joined by other justices, where he continued to express doubts about whether the death penalty as it's it's currently carried out in the United States could continue on. Uh, But the fact that you don't have other justices joining that suggests that perhaps his project of eliminating the death penalty isn't going to come to fruition anytime soon. (laughs) Yeah, I believe in in the the Glossop case in 2015, uh, he wrote a dissent, and I I believe Justice Ginsburg joined his dissent in in that case. uh, but not not that that uh, discussion, uh, as you pointed out in, in this dissent. Now, uh, Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh also wrote separate concurrences. Uh, they were v- both very, very brief. But Thomas said that um, there is no evidence that Missouri designed its protocol to inflict pain on anyone. And so in, in his view, the in- the inquiry should end there. And he points out that the historical evidence shows that the framers sought to disable Congress from imposing various kinds of torturous punishments, such as burning at the stake and emboweling and uh, beheading and quartering people. Uh, but he, he pointed out that, thankfully, the states uh, have not attempted to devise such bi- uh, di- diabolical punishments. And then uh, Justice Kavanaugh, he pointed out um, a point of agreement for all nine of the justices. He said, you know, look, everybody here agrees that in a method of execution challenge, the alternative method identified by the defendant doesn't have to be authorized under current state law. And I think that was something that was a little bit up in the air uh, in in previous cases. Uh, As you pointed out, Justice Breyer wrote the primary dissent, which was joined in part by the other other four liberal members of the court, Justices Ginsburg, Sotomayor. uh, I'm sorry, the other three members of the court, Justices uh, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. And... um, you know, the top top line point there was was that uh, he, he, in his view, the defendant had established a genuine issue of material fact about whether this method of execution would cause him excessive suffering. And that matters, uh, in Breyer's opinion, because the case was at the motion for summary judgment stage at the district court. So allowing the execution to go forward would would violate the clear commands of the Eighth Amendment. And then uh, Justice Sotomayor also wrote a dissent, which was primarily just to take issue with Justice Gorsuch's reference in the in the majority opinion about last minute delays. And she wrote that there are higher values than ensuring that executions run on time. Uh, Any other thoughts on the case? I think I think one interesting uh, thought was that Justice Breyer, in thinking there was a triable issue of fact as to whether the execution method in this case would cause excessive pain, was actually joined, in a sense, on the lower court, the Eighth Circuit, by uh, Judge Colleton, who's a very well-regarded, uh, generally conservative-leaning judge, who mm-hmm. nonetheless felt that there was at least a, a triable issue of fact as to the amount of pain that it would cause. 
But uh, Judge Carlton thought that there would not be a readily available alternative uh, that would so it was interesting that at least on that particular factual point, there was some cross ideological um, views on it in the lower court, at least. And also, I think this case is continuing to show some of uh, some of the fractures that go on when it comes to things like the record in these cases. Um, mm-hmm. It's very unusual for the justices to have to dive into factual issues, and it's it's very interesting to see both the majority taking a shot at Justice Breyer for thinking that he's misreading the record, and then Justice Breyer to to claim that the majority is misreading the record. You usually don't see that kind of intense factual dispute uh, between the justices, but the death penalty tends to bring it out because they are more factual and they tend to take more death penalty cases in general where they might not otherwise, and they'd look for just clean issues of law. I think that's right. And, you know, certainly the, the Eighth Amendment will continue to be a highly polarizing area of the court's jurisprudence. So moving on to the other decision from this week, uh, not nearly as uh, as exciting as a death penalty case. It's uh, Bistek versus Berryhill. This was a 6-3 decision written by Justice Kagan, holding that in a Social Security disability case, expert testimony may constitute substantial evidence, even when the expert refuses to supply the data supporting her testimony. Uh, Justices Sotomayor and Gorsuch uh, wrote dissents, and Justice Ginsburg join Justice Gorsuch's dissent. Did you have any thoughts on that one? I, I, a couple different thoughts. One is that if you want to see two great writers on the court do their thing, um, this is just a wonderful opinion to do it because both Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch are excellent writers. And um, the two of them responding to each other and laying out their positions, they do it very clearly, even if you don't know much about Social Security disability appeals, as I didn't, or (laughs) about vocational experts, as I didn't going into it. You learn a lot, and they both uh, come out with pretty strong strong views. Uh, It's also a great example of, you know, the, the court doesn't always break down to the left and to the right. I mean, Justice Kagan is in the majority writing for the majority. Uh, but then you have Justice Gorsuch leading the dissent. Mm-hmm. And then I think the final interesting thing is that it, I think the dissent shows Justice Gorsuch's continuing skepticism of the administrative state. Um, it has been a project of his back from when he was on the Tenth Circuit through his confirmation and then to when he joined the court of just having a deep skepticism of uh, the kind of adjudication that is done not on Article Three courts, but with a more informal process and how that leads to fairness or unfairness for litigants. One of his major concerns in this case is, um, you know, you're being essentially denied Social Security disability benefits on the basis of evidence you haven't seen and haven't had access to. How can we possibly say that's fair? And also related to Justice Gorsuch is, you know, unfortunately, a slight that's been directed at him is the notion that he doesn't care about the common worker. He doesn't mm-hmm. care about the common citizen. This is a case where he's aligned against the rest of the court, standing up for an individual seeking uh, Social Security disability benefits. So I think it, it shakes up the usual narrative. Definitely. And it's not every day that you see Justice Ginsburg joining a, a Neil Gorsuch dissent. That is true. Uh, moving on, I recently spoke with Brianne Gorad. Brianne Gorad is Chief Counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. Well, thanks for having me. So your organization is dedicated to fulfilling the progressive promise of our Constitution's text and history. 
So it's part of a relatively new subset of originalism, liberal or progressive originalism, championed by professors Akhil Amar and Jack Balkin and others. And I have to say, welcome to the originalism party, guys. (laughs) So, So tell me a bit about progressive originalism and what what drew you to this philosophy? Sure. So, you know, the basic insight of progressive originalism is that the Constitution is, in its most vital respects, a progressive document. Um, That if you look at the Constitution's text, history, and values, it will more often than not lead to progressive outcomes. And I should say, you know, we've actually been a part of this party for quite a while now. Uh, The Constitutional Accountability Center celebrated its 10th anniversary uh, last year. And when it was founded over a decade ago, it was founded specifically to, as you say, promote a progressive understanding of the Constitution's text and history. Our founder, Doug Kendall, saw progressives too often ceding the Constitution to conservatives. Um, And what he wanted to show was that if you look at the Constitution's text and its history, particularly the text and history of the whole Constitution, as it's been amended over time to become a more inclusive and egalitarian and democratic document, um, it is, in its most vital respects, a progressive one. And so he, he didn't want progressives um, to be seeding the Constitution. He thought progressives, no less than conservatives, should embrace the Constitution, should embrace its text and its history as a means of understanding what it means and how it should apply today. And so over the course of the past decade, uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center has been making arguments on a host of different topics from marriage equality to campaign finance to access to the courts grounded in the Constitution's text and history. So to quote Justice Elena Kagan, we're all originalists now. Absolutely. So your organization files a lot of amicus briefs at the Supreme Court. Tell me about the most interesting case that you've worked on. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a good and tough question um, because I've had the good fortune to be able to work on Lots of cases that I think are incredibly interesting and also important. Um, I'm going to cheat just a little bit. It's okay. and give you two. Perfect. Um, and, and these are two that uh, I think are incredibly interesting but didn't get a ton of attention, which I think is itself a great reminder that while the Supreme Court hears lots of cases that make it on the front pages of the newspapers, it hears lots of other cases that don't but that are still really interesting and really important. So one of these cases was a case the court heard a few years ago called Peña Rodriguez v. Colorado. This is a case about whether courts can consider evidence that jurors made racially biased statements during the course of jury deliberations. There are a lot of states that have what are called no impeachment rules. These rules essentially say that courts can't inquire into what happened in the jury room. And we filed a brief in this case arguing that these no impeachment rules can't bar evidence of racial prejudice in jury deliberations, that Allowing them to do that would be at odds with our nation's longstanding commitment to jury deliberations free of racial bias. And what I found so interesting as we were, you know, digging in and writing this brief and researching um, the history, particularly the history of debates over the Civil Rights Acts of 1871 and 1875 during the Reconstruction period, there was actually lots of really specific discussion that made clear that the proponents of these bills really believed that racial bias in jury decision-making was intolerable, that it was at odds with the Sixth Amendment jury right and the Fourteenth Amendment equal protection guarantee. And so it was just fascinating to see how much really focused discussion there was that was really helpful in thinking through this question today. And Justice Kennedy ended up writing the opinion for the court. It was a 5-3 decision holding that courts can look into jury deliberations 
when there are indications of racial bias that cast serious doubt on the fairness of a jury's deliberations and verdict. And, you know, what was interesting to Justice Kagan's point that we're all originalists now, Justice Kennedy, who is probably less thought of in those terms <laughs> than um, many uh, contemporary justices, looked at this history and really drew on it in explaining why the court uh, could look into these claims of racial bias. Definitely uh, an interesting an interesting case that did not make national headlines. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the, the other one is actually a case that the court heard this term, um, not a constitutional case, this is a statutory one called New Prime. Um, this is a case about whether companies can use the Federal Arbitration Act to block truck drivers and other transportation workers who work for them from going into court um, simply by classifying those workers as independent contractors. So the Federal Arbitration Act generally requires courts to enforce arbitration agreements, but it doesn't apply to, quote, contracts of employment. So the question of the case is, what is a contract of employment? Or more specifically, what was a contract of employment when Congress passed the FAA in 1925? And what was fun about this one is our brief really took a close look at what those terms meant, what the term employment meant when the FAA was passed, and how the meaning of that term has evolved over time. So that you know, when we think of contracts of employment now, what we think of is different, at least arguably different, than what um, people thought that term meant uh, when the law was passed. Um, and this was another one where the court ultimately agreed. Justice Gorsuch actually wrote uh, for a unanimous court, mm -hmm. um, agreeing that contracts of employment refers to any agreement to perform work, whether the worker is a company employee or an independent contractor. And Justice Gorsuch traced the same history, um, looking at what the word meant when Congress passed the law and how it's changed over time. And so it was great, again, to see this history reflected in the court's opinion. And this is also just a great example of how even this really pretty divided court can sometimes come together. And I'm sure it's nice to see a Supreme Court justice cribbing from your amicus brief. <laughs> uh, we, we're always happy to be of help to the court. So let's talk about some of your other career highlights. You spent two years in the Office of Legal Counsel during the Obama administration, uh, sometimes called the President's Law Firm. This is an office within the Department of Justice that provides legal advice to the president, the attorney general, and other executive branch officials. So tell me about working in OLC. It was a really terrific experience, um, both because the work the office does is so interesting and important, and I was fortunate enough to be there with really great colleagues who were also um, super excited to be there and playing this really important role in helping to ensure that what the executive branch does is consistent with the Constitution and with federal law. Uh, the Office of Legal Counsel is often known as kind of the constitutional law firm in particular, but you know, as your as your description rightly suggested, OLC answers all kinds of legal questions for all different parts of the executive branch. And what that means is you get exposed to tons of different topics, both substantive um, in terms of the work that the executive branch does and all types of legal questions, um, including ones that you might not get exposure to basically anywhere else. So, you know, questions of appropriation law, for example, <laughs> and questions about things like the emoluments clause that we're all familiar with now, but prior to a couple of years ago, no one really talked about outside of the Office of Legal Counsel. <laughs> um, and the questions are always really interesting um, and really difficult, really challenging questions. That's, they, they tend not to end up at OLC unless they're, they're pretty hard. I used to talk about OLC as being a little bit like, at least in some of the work, being like clerking but on steroids. Mm -hmm. Because the work that you're doing is, in some sense, similar to the work that judges do. 
you're often resolving disputes between different agencies, um, but you're doing it without the kind of briefing that you have at the court and often without a lot of case law because a lot of the questions that OLC ends up dealing with are questions that often don't make it into court and are just resolved internally within the executive branch. So there's executive branch precedent that one can look to, um, but not the same volume of case law that you often have when you're dealing with questions that make it to federal court. So um, it was a really challenging place to work, but a really, really fun place. So as you alluded to, OLC often deals with some of the most controversial and pressing legal issues of our time. So I have to ask, did you work on anything particularly high profile that you can talk about? Um, So I was fortunate enough to work on some things that uh, were fairly high profile. I probably shouldn't speak in great (laughs) detail about what those were. And I'll I'll just say generally, and I was there from late 2009 to 2011. And so it was, you know, pretty early in the Obama administration, there was a lot going on. Um, I think everyone got the chance to work on something that you might also read about in the paper, (laughs) uh, which was fun. And, And one of the things that was also great about working there, at least when I was there, was it was a really collegial and collaborative place where, you know, there would often be more than one attorney advisor, of course, assigned to a particular project, but people were in and out of each other's offices, you know, talking about their projects, talking things through, you know, part because everyone really wanted to make sure that we were getting to the right answers. And so even things that may not have been assigned to any particular attorney, you also still got a chance to think about and talk about, um, which was really great. So you also uh, clerked for Judge Robert Katzman on the Second Circuit. So tell me about Judge Katzman. Um, Judge Katzman is so fantastic. I'm obviously biased. Um, but he, <laughs> you know, in addition to being incredibly smart, of course, was just so thoughtful and so deliberative and takes so seriously the job of being a judge, really personifies the characteristics you would want to have in a judge, both in the courtroom and in thinking through the casework, but also just in his broader commitment to the public interest and to making sure the court system works in the way that one would want it to. So, you know, he has um, set up a program to make sure that um, immigrants have effective legal counsel. He's just set up a new initiative in the Second Circuit where he's now chief judge to help promote an understanding of what the court system does within the community. Um, it's just been a, a really great role model for me and I think all of, all of the folks who have been lucky enough to clerk for him. One of the things that was really great about clerking for him um, was seeing how he interacted with his colleagues. So I, I came to Judge Craftsman after a year of clerking for Judge Jed Rakoff on the Southern District of New York, which was itself an incredible experience. Judge Rakoff is also phenomenal. Um, but obviously one of the big differences between a district court clerkship and an appellate court clerkship is when you're a district court judge, when you're clerking for a district court judge, the decisions are that judge's alone. You know, he controls mm-hmm. his courtroom. Whereas you move to an appellate court, it's a collegial court. The judges have to find consensus certainly as to outcome, but hopefully to reasoning as well, so everyone can join a single opinion. And so it was really great seeing how Judge Katzman um, interacted with his colleagues, both when they agreed and and even more so when they disagreed. Um, He was just so thoughtful and so respectful in the way he engaged and and sought to achieve consensus. It's been um, a real example to me. You know, now over a decade since I clerked for him, you know, I'll still sometimes be thinking through how to write something, how to engage with someone on an issue. And I'll, and I'll ask myself, is this how Judge Katzman would deal with it? And um, uh, that was really great. So I read that Judge Katzman has a twin brother who is also yes. a judge on the U.S. Uh, Court of International Trade. So did you ever get to meet the other Judge Katzman? Uh, so I actually don't think I met him during my clerkship, but have met him since because, and this shows what a small world it can be, Judge Gary Katzman actually clerked for um, 
Judge Breyer when he was in the First Circuit, who I, I clerked for on the court. And so I've had the opportunity to meet him at reunions for <laughs> Justice Breyer, um, which has been great because he's also just so nice and so lovely. I actually um, went to a reunion for uh, the justices' clerks shortly after my son was born. I think he was about six months old. And so I have this picture that I love of him and the justice, the justice tickling him. He has a great smile. <laughs> and in the background, you see Judge Katzman, who looks just like the Judge Katzman for, for whom I clerked, um, but actually not that Judge Katzman, uh, the other Judge Katzman. So it's, <laughs> That's it's really very funny. funny. So turning to your clerkship with Justice Breyer, who also has a brother who's a judge. That's right. All of these uh, pairs of brothers who are judges. Uh, tell me about, uh, about Justice Breyer. Um, he is, you know, as you would expect, terrific. Um, he's he's very much, I think, what people see um, with the additional um, benefit that he is just um, so nice um, and so social. You know, so he's every bit as smart as he seems um, at argument, every bit as engaged and interested in the law um, as he appears. But he's interested in so many things and loves talking with people, whether it's his clerks, other clerks, other people in the building about legal cases, about history, about what books you're reading. Um, he's just an incredibly fun person to clerk for. And, you know, one of the things that was most fun um, was the discussion and engagement with him about the cases. You know, everyone loves his hypotheticals um, and loves talking <laughs> about his hypotheticals. Um, and they're really not for show. I mean, they're really how he thinks through the issues in the case. And so, you know, in chambers before argument, we'd be going back and forth with him, having the same kinds of discussions, trying to answer the same kinds of hypotheticals he'd ask counsel. And, and so one of the, the most fun parts would be have that kind of exchange with the justice and then go watch argument and see how the real veterans, the seasoned you know, Supreme Court practitioners would deal with those questions. So he's been portrayed in the media a little bit as being sort of an absent-minded professor type. He, he's had a few bicycle accidents. One time his cell phone went off during oral argument, which is a big no-no. So uh What's he? What's he really like? Is he is he absent-minded? Um, there's certainly a, a little bit of that. I mean, what I think was funny um, about him is he could be a little bit absent-minded, but only about the things that really didn't matter at all. <laughs> I'll, I'll put aside whether the cell phone going off an argument matters. Um, you know, like as one example, uh, he might sometimes need to be prompted a little bit to remember the the name of the case, um, but then. Every other detail he would have complete mastery of. So, you know, what happened in the lower court, um, what each of the parties were arguing and all of the complexities in detail, all of the relevant precedent, um, all of that he would have complete mastery of. I mean, I would be working so hard to keep up with my quarter of the docket, docket and just be amazed by his complete mastery of, you know, every detail of every case the court was, was hearing that term. Well, and the name of a case is probably the the least important part. <laughs> I think that's right. So I've heard about Justice Alito's flamingos, and Chief Justice Roberts has uh, the couch that John Quincy Adam died on. Does, that's amazing. Does Justice Breyer have anything whim- whimsical in his chambers? I don't know if he has anything that whimsical. He, his chambers are definitely very much a reflection of who he is in all um, various aspects. So, you know, you'll have the section of his um, bookshelves that's filled with the books that are in French because he loves to work on uh, his French. He has mementos from his different mentors throughout his career. I remember there was a lovely um, kind of newspaper cartoon that had an inscription from Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, who he worked for before he went on the bench. Um, and his chambers would even sometimes have like kids' books on his coffee table because he's a doting grandfather. <laughs> so it really captured his personality um, in all respects. That's wonderful. So I've also heard about, uh, you know, many of the justices have uh, 
traditional outings with their clerks. So Justice Gorsuch takes his clerks skiing. Justice Thomas typically uh, takes his clerks on a trip to Gettysburg. Does Justice Breyer have any traditions like that? Uh, well, well, definitely nothing that requires the athleticism of the skiing. So that, that's something <laughs> that I'm grateful for. He has a couple of traditions with his clerks. At the end of the term, he always hosts the clerks uh, for a dinner at his home to celebrate the end of the term. And he has regular reunions with all of his clerks, both those who clerked for him at the Supreme Court and his First Circuit clerks um, that are kind of full weekend affairs with a nice dinner at the court and then more casual events at the homes of former clerks who live in the area. And so those are really nice occasions to um, catch up not only with the justice, but with the larger clerk family. I found that with all three of my judges, um, it's been great to develop relationships not only with the people that I clerked with, um, but with clerks who came before me and after me and, and really do think of uh, having an extended clerk family for all three of my judges. That's really wonderful. So one final question we ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Wow. Um, I'll, I'll again cheat, if it's okay, and, and name two. So one, I'll um, allow it. <laughs> Justice, the other Justice Marshall, uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, um, just to, to really talk with him about his career and his uh, the work he did as much before he went on the bench uh, as after. Um, last year I read this great book that I highly recommend called Devil in the Grove about some of his work at LDEF. And so I would love to just chat with him about that and how he thought through the strategy as he was um, litigating. And I think my other would be Justice Owen Roberts um, to ask him about serving on that court and what really motivated his change in position. Switch in time to save nine. Switch in time to save nine. Perfect. Well, that would be definitely interesting conversations. And uh, I'll have to check out The Devil in the Grove. Sounds like a great book. Well, Brianne, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks so much for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. I'm going to try to stump my guest, Sean Murata. Are you ready? As uh, ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> uh, so all of these questions are about current justices. First question. This justice was nicknamed Shorty by the Supreme Court justice that he or she clerked for. That's Justice Kagan. That is correct. And uh, bonus points if you can name the justice that she clerked for. Uh, Justice Marshall. That is correct. Thurgood Marshall. Okay, you're off to a great start. Second question. Which justice played the role of Peppermint Patty in a high school production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown? I tweeted this one out because I'm just far enough in the biography to see that anecdote, and that is the Chief Justice. (laughs) That is right. And he played Peppermint Patty because he went to an all-boys school. Third question. Who had the first televised swearing-in ceremony? Ooh. Uh, I am going to guess Justice Thomas, but I do not know this one. It's actually Justice Sonia Sotomayor in 2009. And I'm not sure if all of them since then. I don't believe they've all been televised. Anyway, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive that Justice Kavanaugh's was not televised. And I I don't recall if Gorsuch's was. I mean, I, mean, I remember seeing a lot of pictures from it. But anyway, moving on. Fourth question. A baseball team's mascot made a surprise appearance at this justice's welcome dinner at the Supreme Court. I'm just going to 
guess because he is a big baseball fan is Justice Toledo. That is correct. And do you know uh, what his beloved baseball team is? Yes, he's a Philadelphia Phillies fan, and so is the Phillies fanatic, I guess. That is correct. You are doing Although really, really well. Gritty is the big is the big you know Philadelphia sports figure now. So poor fanatic. <laughs> All right, fifth and final question: Which justice graduated in the same law school class as President Obama? I can give you a hint if you'd like. It. All right, all right. Both graduates of Harvard. 1991. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> that would, let's see, it would probably be, is it Justice Gorsuch? It is. You're correct. Oh, okay. Wow. Notably, I don't think President Obama was on the letter of uh, classmates supporting Neil Gorsuch's uh, <laughs> confirmation. <laughs> I, I don't think so, although my, my, my one tie here actually at Hogan Lovells is that we had an attorney that actually went up against President Obama for editor-in-chief of the Harvard Law Review, Amy Kett, who went on to clerk for uh, Justice O'Connor. So she turned out just fine from not getting it. <laughs> but that is our that is our connection. A claim to fame. Well, Sean, I think you did a really great job. And these questions all came from a California NPR affiliate. Uh, I will tweet out the link to the article if people are interested in reading more obscure facts about the current members of the court. And, Sean, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. And you can email us at scotus101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.